0: Sisters and brothers, ladies and gentlemen, friends, neighbors, comrades, all citizens of the world, wherever you're going, wherever you've been, and wherever you're at, we welcome you to the Live from the Heartland show on Apple Podcasts. New episodes air Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. I'm your host, Michael James encouraging you to take the chain from the brain to get back in the people's game because it's time to move from the lower level to the higher from the shallower to the deeper from the one-sided to the many and from the abstract to the concrete so without further ado let's get it on hello everybody and welcome to live from the heartland for the week of january 20th in the great year 2024 We are recording this on Martin Luther King Day, January 15th. We are in the heart of Rogers Park in Chicago, and I am Michael James, your host for today's show. Our guest today will be the former alderman, longtime professor, keen-eyed fellow regarding politics in Chicago, the one and only Dick Simpson. And then we're bringing back another old friend, Warren Lemming, used to be involved with a band called Wilderness Road and a lot of other things since then. And we're going to talk the American underground and bohemian culture, what it used to be and what's lacking today. So, a couple of good things. Uh, one of the things uh, happened late last night, again, we're recording on the 15th, uh, was that Bernardo Arrevalo is now the new president of Guatemala. And you, political folks with keen uh, memories, remember that in 56. The United States helped to overthrow a fellow named Arbenz, who was a progressive and popular leader. And ever since then, there have been a succession of pretty conservative right-wing folks in Guatemala. And this is a big change. There's a lot of attempts to keep him from carrying out his pledges, but we shall see. And the U.S. has gotten better on that and actually helped to make sure that the election wasn't messed up more than they attempted to do. This also being Martin Luther King Day when we are recording this show, I thought I'd share a couple of memories. King's speech, uh, you know, I have a dream, that kind of thing always has gotten to me. A lot of tears over the years swell up. I first saw Dr. King in the summer of 1966. When I was working in Uptown with Joint Community Union, and we went to a rally at Soldier Field. I remember him driving in in a convertible along with then Senator Paul Douglas. A few years later, I, uh, in 1963, I went to the March on Washington, and I uh, found something I wrote in the rag blog about that. I was going to school in Connecticut up at Trinity, taking a Spanish class, and myself and two other fellows took a ride in a little green, I call it a critter, but it was a Volkswagen. So I'm gonna quote myself here. The morning of August 23rd, 1963, we were moving first in the little green critter of a car surrounded by busloads of people on the Freedom Road. Then we walked, marching, surrounded by a mass of humanity. And then thousands upon thousands of us stood together as one at the Lincoln Memorial and Reflecting Pool. We felt a real sense of hope and togetherness, a belief in the future. To this day, I welcome the tears that come often when I hear Dr. King as he declares, I have a dream we shall overcome someday, black and white together. That day is good forever. I also got to meet Dr. King briefly in a West Side apartment with Rennie Davis back in the summer of 66, I believe, and then I had the honor of being a speaker at a peace march on March 25th, 1967, at the Coliseum, along with Dr. King, Emil Maisie from the United Auto Workers, and Dr. Spock. So, you know, all these memories came up as I realized what day it was, and it is a holiday here now, and uh, we are now recording on Monday, so it was the perfect time to share some of those thoughts. I want to add one other thing that I got in an email, Joseph at substack.com. That's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, Joseph. And he has a piece that I got in the mail today, and he is an, an author, a best-selling New York Times author. He says, now heralded as a symbol of peace and racial harmony, Dr. King was, in the context of his time, a figure of immense controversy, a radical whose vision for America Challenge the very foundations of his societal structures. You know, this is an article called The Co-opting of a Radical, the Deliberate Distortion of Dr. Martin Luther King's Legacy. Again, Frederick Joseph at Substack.com if you want to read the whole thing. It's very good. Okay, that's enough chatter for the opening of the show. We're going to have a little musical break brought to us by our engineer, Hal James. And then we'll be back with Dick Simpson. And we're going to talk about a new book that he has that basically is about Chicago's modern mayors from Harold Washington to Lori Lightfoot. Be right back. Welcome back, you citizens of the world. And now here on Live from the Heartland for the week of January 20th, we bring on the one and only Dick Simpson. He was an alderman way back. He's a longtime professor at University of Illinois, Chicago, and an author. And what caught my attention this time, and he's been on the show a number of times, was a panel put together um, that included uh, a number of people talking about Uh, Chicago's Past Mayors, basically Chicago's Modern Mayors, from Harold Washington to Lori Lightfoot. The book is edited by both Dick Simpson and Betty O'Shaughnessy, and they recently had a panel at the Chicago Library, the Harold Washington Library, uh, on this past Tuesday, January 29th. I had hoped to go, but I get lazy later in the evening, so I got you in person, well, so to speak, resuming it. Good afternoon to you, Dick, or good morning, wherever, whatever time it is when people are watching the show. Good morning and afternoon to you. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the book. Um, You know, uh, how did you pick the folks on the panel? Uh, What led to you doing this most recent book and uh, this event?
1: So we were setting up some panels at uh, UIC when I, before I retired, and we had an various scholars, journalists, sociologists, political scientists, to talk about the different mayors and to try and figure out what happened and what Chicago's political history was like, because it's very easy for us to break up our history in terms of mayoral uh, eras. We all remember like the Harold Washington era or the Lori Lightfoot era. So that made it a very compact way and a very compelling way to tell the story of modern Chicago politics. And uh, how did the event turn out, and who was on the panel? So um, we had different authors for different mayors. The ones who were actually present uh, for the panel were Betty O'Shaughnessy and myself, Kerry Leiterson and Daniel Bliss, uh, who was at IIT. And uh, we had Monroe Anderson, who was the press secretary for Mayor Sawyer, And I was reading the comments also from Dennis Judd, uh, who was a former head of department at UIC and is now retired in St. Louis. We had two authors who weren't there uh, from Washington D.C. who did the Harold Washington chapter. Um, It was um, a grand adventure looking back at Chicago history and trying to make sense out of it. And these authors all have very special insights. They don't agree. They're all you know, uh, doing different mayors and doing different points of view and different ways to approach the topic. Was Carrie Leiterson actually on the site? Yes, yes.
0: Oh, I didn't know she was back in town. and yes, Daniel, she is. Daniel Bliss is not Daniel Biss, the mayor of,
1: uh, no. of uh,
0: Evanston. I, yeah,
1: that, There is some con- uh, confusion about that. Uh, <laughs> we would have been glad to have Daniel Biss as well, but uh, Daniel Bliss is a one of my former students who got his Ph.D. and is now associate professor down at IIT. Well, Daniel Biss is busy dealing with
0: the uh, the blowback around creating a new stadium up in Evanston. And if people listen to or watch last week's Live from the Heartland, uh, we had both uh, Jim Canadel, a former track coach at Northwestern, as well as uh, the activist Jeff Smith talking about all those things, including the mayor there. But back to Chicago's mayors, what was the <laughs> highlight of it? Uh, who impressed you the most? Who won your heart? Who uh, changed your mind on anything? Anything like that come to mind?
1: I think that's true of all of the mayors. I think we uncovered a new way of looking at each of them. But the book has an arc to it, uh, or the history has an arc, and the book records that arc. It runs from Harold Washington and to Lori Lightfoot bookending the progressive eras of modern Chicago history, which is being carried on by Brandon Johnson. Uh, but it has in between, uh, there are really two kinds of mayors, the progressive reform mayors, and then there are what might be called the establishment builder mayors. Uh, think for instance of Richard M. Daly building up the lakefront, um, putting those fences around uh, the parks and the schools, Uh, beautifying Chicago, making us uh, at least presiding over when we became a global city. So builder in that sense, like his father was. Now, I fought with his father every year of his life uh, that I was at least around in Chicago. So I don't mean to say that we always agree with what they built or how they neglected the neighborhoods to build it or the racism that's existed in Chicago. But it's important to recognize the contributions and the failings of each of the mayors. And that's what we tried to achieve.
0: Well, let's uh, let's go through these mayors one by one. Let's start with our favorite, uh, probably yours too, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Harold Washington. What do what did uh, the panel have to say about Harold and his his short reign here
1: in Chicago? Well, for each mayor, we asked essentially all the authors to 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 work on four questions. How did they get elected? What was their relationship with the city council and also the various groups like the labor and business communities and the, and the local neighborhoods? Uh, then what were their big challenges? What was the crisis in their administration? Or the challenges and how did they rise to it? And then finally, what is their legacy? To go through that with Harold very quickly, uh, Harold, as you know, got elected with 36 percent of the vote in the primary. He did not get 51 percent. He only got 52% in the general election. Uh, he was a real challenge to the establishment. Um, you know, you had two white uh, people running against one black man, and uh, you, he had uh, the combined forces of the old and new machine uh, trying to beat off the progressive reform, uh, of which you and your colleagues up at the heartland were very much a part of. Uh, this was really an incredible election. Uh, You know, we remember some of the key events like uh, out on the northwest side of Chicago when even Vice President Mondale was uh, jeered and when uh, there was real fear that uh, maybe Harold would be killed in the process. Very angry mobs uh, at some of the churches and other events on the northwest side. Uh, But Harold prevailed. And his biggest challenge was probably the challenge with the city council. Um, he also had the challenge with Reaganomics. He was dealing with two different problems. One, he didn't have the votes in the city council. There was a 29-21 split, the so-called council wars. Uh, and at the same time, Ronald Reagan was president and, uh, Harold had led in Congress the protests against Reaganomics. Um, and he continued even as mayor to have to fight a lack of money from Washington and a lack of support in the city council. Uh, He did have uh, the strong support of the neighborhoods. He was able to rally all of the community of many of the community organizations in Chicago. And uh, through their combined efforts, they finally overcame with a court case, uh, the gerrymandering and Harold got a majority in the council, but he only lived seven months after that happened. Uh, Interestingly enough, the split in the city council went from 29 to 21 to 40-10. Uh, There is an automatic transfer whenever the mayor gets the full power of the aldermen bend their knee.
0: Well, we loved Harold, and we're real sorry that he didn't live longer. Um, I remember when he came to the heartland, uh, he was there for a great rally, but he was also there on another occasion. And uh, he ate the catfish, but not the vegetables and not the cornbread.
1: Yeah, um, and that was his uh, undoing eventually, unfortunately. He well, needed was those vegetables. Some,
0: some people thought that he had, he had been knocked off. Do you have any credence with that? Is there anything to No, it? it's
1: not true. He oh, okay. died uh, of a stroke because of, um, or you can think of it as a heart attack. His, his heart was three or four times the size of, of most people's hearts. And that was really true of Harold himself. He was very outgoing, besides being a wonderful wordsmith and a wonderful speaker. Uh, he really did care about people and paid attention to people and their needs. Yeah, I still think that he deserves a lot
0: more attention than he's gotten, on the, even on the national stage. But uh, we, that, that'll come, I'm sure, over time. Let's let, go on to our next mayor. Who was our next mayor after that? So it well, here-
1: was Eugene Sawyer. Um, he got elected, obviously, in that controversial all-night meeting at the city uh, hall when the alderman voted him in. I remember that he- meeting. <laughs> yep. very, uh, just <laughs> yeah, very chaotic. stop it. Yeah. There are a number of things about the uh, story that really most people don't remember. First of all, uh, although he got elected by the white alderman, um, the old 29 who were opposed to Harold, uh, he managed um, his program, was the Harold Washington program. Uh, The things he carried forward were the Harold Washington agenda, and many of the people in the Cabinet and in City Hall were still Harold Washington supporters. Uh, And that's usually not recognized. One thing that is pretty well known but not thought about, he had the most divided city council, maybe in the history of Chicago, and I've studied many of them, but certainly in the last 50 years. And because it wasn't a rubber stamp, it was almost anarchy. There were 187 divided roll call votes in a single year. that They couldn't agree that where the sun came up this morning. Uh, well, some Chicagoans looking outside might have a doubt about that too. But it was that divided, it was chaotic. But he got through important legislation uh, that moved the city forward. Uh, he was uh, defeated. Each of the mayors. You know, one of the findings in the book is, of course, whites are no longer the dominant only race in Chicago and controlling all affairs. Uh, to be mayor, you had to have the support of a couple of parts of the racial coalitions in the city, and Sawyer uh, couldn't get a unified black support and couldn't get the progressive support, uh, so he lost badly uh, in uh, in the election. Uh, he's an under, uh, appreciated. Uh, figure he had many flaws, but uh, he uh, he was better than most people understood. We go forward to Richard M. Daly. another Daley, another 22-year mayor. Um, Richard M. Daly did a number of things. Um, he did calm the racial tensions in Chicago, uh, which were still going on in the city council during the Sawyer reign. Uh, they were becoming explicit again. Um, He did was a builder, establishment mayor. Uh, The negative side, uh, I've already talked a little bit about the lakefront and the other things he did, but the downside uh, was uh, that there was corruption. He re-erected the machine, this time plugging in the rich global economy, the people who benefited from the global economy, the lawyers, the bankers, the the traders, and the others. uh, And That uh, allowed him to have complete power. He used patronage. The Sourich decision showed that he had 5,000 patronage workers, but they weren't through the regular ward organizations. The uh, ward committeemen and others had often broken with him and tried to put him down after his father's death. So he created his own patronage army, Um, you know. So, His greatest downfall was that he sold off the city assets as uh, one-time financial benefits to be able to balance the budget without increasing the proper taxes, and that created many of the problems. Most people remember the selling of the Skyway, but much worse was the selling of the parking meters. And then we go on uh, to Rahm Emanuel, who sort of daily owns steroids. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, raised $32 million to run for mayor. he had created the idea of running a presidential-style campaign uh, for mayor uh, with people like David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel on his staff. But Emanuel was able to buy big ads to really uh, push through. He no longer had a patronage army, but he had so much money uh, that it didn't matter that you didn't have a Patrick army or didn't have much of a Patrick Jarmi left.
0: Uh, he did, like
1: Daily, do a lot of building. He completed the Daily program in a way. A lot of parts of Millennium Park, a lot of the redoing of Navy Pier actually happened during the Ron Emanuel era, but it was still downtown. It was still trying to attract the new tech industries and be part of the global economy. All of those things were pretty positive, but the downside was the neighborhoods were armed. Uh, Most, Many of your listeners, uh, viewers will know about the book, Mayor 1% by Carrie. Uh, she uh, continues that theme a bit in, the, uh, in this analysis, in this book, uh, closing mental health centers, the closing of 50 public schools and so forth during the manual era. And then we get to Lori Lightfoot, uh, Lori Lightfoot, I think, um, uh, has also been underappreciated, and I'll just cover a few things. First of all, Lori's election, uh, was sort of a near miracle. Um, at the time, uh, Rahm Emanuel dropped out of the race, roughly Labor Day, uh, he had 31% support. It was clear he was going to have a hard time being a elected mayor, but all of his opponents, the most, the strongest, had 16%. And Lori Lightfoot had only 2 or 3% support when it started. Uh, she was outraised. Bill Daly raised $9 million. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle raised $5 million. Lori raised $1.5 million. But that was enough. And uh, mainly she got elected on a, a reform platform. And there were two parts to her coalition, a good government reform part of the coalition and a progressive part of the coalition. She delivered... Better to the good government coalition, but she did very progressive and important things, uh, such as the, uh, the South and Best Southwest program. She also confronted COVID and saved thousands and thousands of lives because we did right with COVID, whereas we're having such a great struggle today with the immigration problem uh, under Brandon Johnson. Uh, I could go on on any of these, but I'll follow your questions. Well. First of all,
0: there's a couple of mayors in there that are, well, I'm going to bring it up to our current mayor, Brandon Johnson. I mean, uh, I would say that Lori kind of had a progressive uh, base of support. Uh, The new mayor, Johnson does, and certainly Harold did. And I'm just a little um, warning what your take is, how does Chicago end up, you know, being this hard-ass city that we, uh, you know, with the Chicago machine and all that, how we ended up coming up with these progressive mayors? Is there something in the
1: DNA of our populace that's leading us in a progressive direction? Well, one thing is we've had a historic struggle uh, for over 100 years between machine and reform. The political machine was first created in 1871 after the Chicago Fire. Uh, The reform movement has existed all along. It hasn't always been the same reforms. the earlier progressives, as they were called, were really good government reformers, uh, not necessarily social progressives. And we built up uh, with Saul Alinsky, with Jane Addams, with thousands of others who've contributed. We've managed to change the direction of the city. And partly it's because of the problems we've confronted over the years. Uh, we have to be a modern city, and the modern city is more progressive than the old city.
0: Well, we're going to run out of time which we always do in the show on when these interviews get going, but why don't you talk a little bit about uh off the cuff if you want or I mean you may have it written down, our current mayor Mayor Johnson. I know he's come in with a lot of challenges. He certainly turned out the vote. He surprised a lot of people. Um you know, we're rooting for him. I think it's been a little rocky, but it was rocky for Harold early on.
1: Uh any take on Johnson and going forward? Well, I think we have to give Johnson some time. You're right that Harold wasn't, uh, Harold had a good administration and good people, good ideas, but because of council wars, wasn't able to implement them for some time. Um, so uh, Brandon Johnson has got a different problem. He's been a little slow to appoint the commissioners and the key members of the cabinet. He has uh, fumbled uh, to, he hasn't had a plan like Lori Lightfoot and her, Uh, health commissioner, had a plan for dealing with COVID. Uh, Brandon has sort of been flying by the seat of his pants on the immigration issue. But nonetheless, Brandon has passed important legislation. In fact, he has not lost a vote in the city council. He has 30 aldermen who've supported him. They're not the same 30 aldermen every time. This isn't rock solid, but he does have support. The only issue on which... uh, there was almost a lost vote, was a censure of his uh, floor leader at the time, and that really wasn't Brandon's fault, and it wasn't really uh, a Brandon or an ideological issue.
0: Uh, what do you got to say in about two minutes that we have left about the future of our city and our uh, our government? We do have a good number of uh, avowed socialist types now in the city council. Um There's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of good
1: ideas going on. What's your take? Well, I'm always uh, positive about the future of Chicago, but it's always a struggle and always our choice. Um, If we don't fight for it, we won't get it. Um, And so it's important to keep alive the progressive movement and the reform movement and to move the city forward. And the people need to be empowered. We've failed to provide neighborhood government, We failed to give the power to the people, and that's still participatory democracy is the way forward, and we're not there yet.
0: I like your worldview there, and I want to thank you very much, Dick Simpson, for coming on, and I'm inviting you back right now, maybe in another month, because we've got more to talk about. People should get this newly released book, Chicago's Modern Mayors, from Harold Washington to Lori Lightfoot, edited by not only Dick Simpson, but also Betty O'Shaughnessy. Anything else you want to add as we go out, Dick? No, keep the faith and keep working. We're moving in the right direction. All right, all power to the people. We'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland. We're going to delve deep into Bohemia with uh, Warren Lemming in our second segment. Um, You're here on the left end of the dial. And uh, wherever you're getting the show, we're glad you're here. And we'll be right back with a little bit more for this week of January 20th. And I'm angry in the sky, and there's a new voice crying, not afraid to die. Let the old world make believe in the land of death, but nothing can change the shape of things to come. Okay, everybody, we're back with more live from the heartland for the week of January 20th, and, uh, um, We're going to talk for the next uh, period of time on the show about Beatniks, Bohemians, the underground, what happened in the old days, what's going on now. And we were doing this all with our friend Warren Lemming. Some of you may have uh, known Warren from the band Wilderness Road or some of the plays that he's done, but he's a wonderful fellow, a good man, and knows a lot of things that he's going to share with us here on Live from the Heartland. Hey, Warren, how you doing? Hey,
2: good Michael. Good to see you. Glad things are going well. I hope everybody out there is staying warm cause we're going to be knocking out those hits and those hypes and those heavies today, but say, hey, don't go away. We've got the d j here, Michael working on it. We're going to get down and tromp around and make some shit happen, okay?
0: And we're did wop and we're back on the scene with the word making the machine. anyhow we were talking the other day last time you were on the show and we ended up uh you were kind of talking about uh beatniks and bohemians and the politics of that and how that seems to be missing so i thought it'd be great if you wanted to share some of your thoughts memories inspirational uh, yeah
2: i I mean that uh, it's it's like we're all formed by something or other and for me it was going down as a as a young high school kid to, to the corner of Chestnut and State in Chicago. Now, if you go down there now, it's it's uh, gentrified, it's gigantic high-rises and whatnot. Uh, in my day, and this we're talking the 50s in Chicago, uh, it was a home to the Dill Pickle Club, uh, the uh, College of Complexes with Slim Brundage, famous figure, uh, and Maury's uh, Cafe, which was a beatnik cafe. And, uh, and the pad, which was another place where people went to have a few libations and a little more. And it was a wonderful spot. And it, and it speaks to Chicago's old Bohemian uh, situation in the 20s and the 30s because of the IWW, the famous IWW, Workers of the World. Uh, that was going on in Chicago. You had Sherwood Anderson here, the writer. You had Theodore Dreiser. You had Maxwell Bodenheim you had a famous bohemian scene. You had Emma Goldman, uh, the radical herself, who was uh, rousted out of the country by the FBI and and uh, just a whole famous se- segment of, of bohemia going on here in Chicago. But Chicago was the center of a kind of bohemia. And that brings us to the next topic, which is a book that's coming out through Kerr Publishing. It's being re-released called Hobo Bohemia. Okay, and it's... Uh, It used to have an introduction to it, still has an introduction to it by my old friend, Franklin Rosemont, who I met in Proviso High School years and years Uh and years ago. And he had a a little thing called The Lantern, which is a mimeograph sheet. And some friends of mine, Alex Gaydash, myself, and some other people wrote for it. We did radical poetry and whatnot, and we were accused by one of the uh, faculty of being communists. So we were called into the dean's office, and uh, we were summarily uh, going to be kicked out of school, but somebody who was a, a progressive on the faculty got wind of this and actually stepped in and saved us and said, I know these kids, they're decent, God-fearing Christians. Don't, you know, don't, don't chuck them into the snow. So we were saved in that sense, but that'll give you some idea of the kind of hysteria that was going on in the country in the 50s. But more to the point, uh, Chicago was a center in the 20s and the 30s, and even before uh, of a huge radical Bohemian um, co- community. There was a thing called the Anarchist Picnic in uh, the, in Chicago. And this was before the turn of the century, and it annually drew 40,000 people. Okay, if you can imagine that. And of course, Chicago was famous because in 1886, you had the Haymarket incident. Uh, which led to the uh, the hanging of four men and uh, the imprisonment of three others. And then Altgeld, who was later the governor, pardoned them and and had his career destroyed because he had pardoned these fellows who had been in charge. Their crime was advocating an eight-hour day and the union
1: movement.
2: And that got him in such terrible trouble that uh, four of them were hung. Uh, and they packed the court, and uh, it was a pretty awful situation. But Chicago was the site of the that, that the most famous, I'd say the most famous uh, class incident of the 19th century. That you
0: happened. know, Alt-Geld, some people might not know, yeah. but there is Altgeld Street in Chicago named after right. the great right. governor and it's right off of Lincoln Avenue somewhere north of Fullerton yeah. as i recall
2: and there's also a monument to him and a a, a citation from his speech uh when he uh, freed the haymarket hay guys and they they went after him they destroyed his career destroyed his uh his financial life and he paid a terrible price for having done the right thing you know it's a Warren, little right, like we were talking TV.
0: Pardon? When we were talking uh, a couple of weeks back and started yeah. to think about getting together on this, um, yeah. we were talking beatniks and bohemians, the underground, and right. Uh, right. I started th- I started thinking of things like Allen Ginsberg, right? That poem "Wichita Vortex Sutra," yeah. And yeah. Erling yeah. Getty with uh, Coney Island of the Mind, you and see, then coming right. back to Chicago with um, the likes of Eddie Belchowski, you know, right. so. To throw in on some of those people. Well, Eddie
2: was a, was a guy that I knew well. He's a wonderful artist. And I have some of his work to this day, in fact. But Eddie Belchowski, Sid Harris, uh, Johnny Rawson, uh, these were guys who had gone off and fought with the Lincoln Brigade in the 30s uh, in Spain. And then they came back to the United States and uh, were mostly harassed by the FBI for the uh, the uh, to the end of their days. But they were... They they were termed, uh, that Orwellian term for them was premature anti-fascists, which meant that they, yes, it was good that they were against Hitler, but they did it too soon. And as a consequence of doing it too soon, of course, the United States had embargoed Spain between 34 and 36, the Spanish Civil War, and that, that helped cost uh, the Spanish loyalists, uh, who the Lincoln Brigaders fought with, helped uh, cost, cost them the uh, the insurgency, and uh, the fascists
0: won. Yeah, like uh, both Hitler and Mussolini were practicing before the Second World War, before we got involved, on right, Spain, and uh, American progressives went over there to try to, uh, you know, keep uh, the current government or protect against fascism. Right, mm-hmm. right. So Eddie Beltowski was a pretty— uh, well-known artist and also a, a pianist. And I yeah. didn't know and anything about arm. him. When we yeah. were early days at the Heartland Cafe, where yeah. the show originates from, right. we uh, there was a one-armed guy playing the piano at the Heartland in one right. of the dining rooms on an afternoon. Yeah. And I remember just kind of walking by and stopping and looking, and he gave me a really hard little look.
2: Uh-huh. You know,
0: but I just smiled and... I dug it, and then I talked to Mimi Harris. You mentioned Sid Harris. Yeah, Mimi, Sid. Uh, Sid was a great photographer and a uh, had fought in Spain. And uh, yeah. Mimi is his wife. She ran the old three-penny cinema where there were like a lot of hip movies. She's a man. Uh, Johnny Rothson. She told me in on Belchowski. She told me who he was and yeah. all that stuff. And I wish I had known more about him early and even talked to him. When I had He's an amazing guy, I could have talk
2: to him. Yeah, but that's the, again, uh, Mimi Harris, wonderful, wonderful, amazing woman, uh, wife to Sid. And Sid was a terrific photographer, Eddie, an artist, and uh, had one arm. I saw him in a documentary which had been shot and was being shown uh, in East Germany, of all places, in East Berlin in the early 80s. And lo and behold, I went to see it. And uh, there was Eddie popping up on screen. And that uh, talked about his um, his experiences in the in the Spanish Civil War. He lost an arm in the Civil War, and uh, he remained a one-handed uh, piano player of uh, real ability. just a marvelous, marvelous character.
0: Warren Lemmy, you you mentioned Germany, and i uh, I just no. flashed that uh, when I first met you it was probably the night that uh, you played a rising up angry benefit at Alice's restaurant or Alice's revisited. Right, um, And uh, then, you know, you guys were hitting it pretty heavy with Wilderness Road on Columbia Records, and right. I didn't really see or know much about you. Then later on, uh, there's all this German connection. So, you right. know, I'm going to ask you, who was around at the time of the Bohemians, What? how do you connect to Berlin and to Germany? And- well, I went
2: to live in, uh, in East Berlin, uh, West Berlin, East Berlin. In uh, the early eighties, I was working on some Brecht material and I wanted to get more language proficiency because I speak German and off I went and I wound up living at uh, part of the time in East Berlin. And that was very difficult to get into in those days. You had the wall up and they were, uh, you know, considered persona non gratona by the American government. And lo and behold, when I came back from Berlin, I got a call from the FBI and they said, uh, you know, would you mind if we came over and interviewed you or we we had a little talk? I think that was the way it was phrased. And (laughs) I said, no, I don't want you guys coming over where I'm living, but I'll meet you at a restaurant. I remember this guy said, well, how will you know me? And I said, "Uh, well, I'll meet you at the Busy Bee restaurant on Damon Avenue in Wicker Park. And believe me, I will know you. So I walk in the Busy Bee that morning, and there's a guy in a white shirt, uh, red tie, blue blazer, uh, khaki pants. And I went up to him and I said, hi, Joe, it's Warren. Let's sit down and have a conversation. And we did. And uh, he was interested in my, um, my reasons for going. I said, I was there just out of curiosity. And in those days, you had to be officially invited normally. And, he, and his question to me quite accurately was, you know, well, what, what, what brought you there? I said, I was interested in what was going on. You know, they, it's, it's, it's a socialist country, so-called. And uh, I was interested in how that was working and whatnot. And uh, have you been out of the country? I, I asked. And he said, no, I've never left. I said, well, you've got to get out of the United States to get a real good understanding of what's going on here. You know, that's still true I,
0: day for people to get out of the country and to absolutely.
2: travel and both I'm in one, the
0: country and out of the country.
2: Yeah. And I'm one of these people like you. I have spent my entire life looking at the rest of the world from a country on whose side in terms of uh, the internationally, the liberation movements. I'm never on. In other words, my country, yours included, of course, right, is never on the right side internationally of any kind of liberation movement so i'm looking at cuba and i'm looking at nicaragua and i'm looking at el salvador and i'm looking at central and south america and i'm looking elsewhere and i don't find the united states on the right side of any of those situations
0: and that's when you go- know, but i i did report earlier in the show at the opening no. that there is a new president uh took uh was came into office just last night in Guatemala, and mm-hmm. a lot of resistance from the old guard there. Mm-hmm. And um, and, but in one article I read, it really did talk about how the U.S. really kind of paved the way and stood up to uh, the old regime regarding. Well, the- it was a notorious wow. guy
2: in Guatemala. He's a fundamentalist Christian. His name was General Rios Montt. And we were financing and equipping and training his people. And uh, he was responsible, as was the Guatemalan army, for the deaths of maybe 200,000 indigenous people in Guatemala. So don't think that the Guatemalan Mayan population doesn't know who the United States or what what it represents in that situation. He was later tried by their Supreme Court and found guilty of Crimes against humanity, I think the court later had to back away because of death threats, but at least they found guilty one time around. But we have a very sad history with Guatemala
0: Warren, let me uh, let me ask you a little bit about uh which it, the topic was sort of bohemian generation uh, and yeah, resistance no, right. If I was to ask you what what about that Bohemian well, you
2: you would mentioned Ginsburg. I went in nineteen fifty nine as a high school senior. Uh, I had gone to uh, see Allen Ginsberg at the Sherman House in Chicago, where he read his poems, uh, Kaddish and "Howell." And Howell uh, poetry was taken uh, more seriously in those days. Howell was actually, as I recall, there was a profile done of Ginsberg and Life magazine, and they had reprinted the entirety of Howell. And like a lot of Americans of our age in 1957, I read On the Road, and that was a mind blower. Everybody read off the road. There wasn't anybody who didn't read that book and who wasn't uh, affected by it. And it is an extraordinary book. And it, it took, I, uh, it's
0: around. I read it too. Yeah, and I, exactly. I, actually, I actually was in Mexico uh, yeah. in a hospital in 62 right. when I read it. And, and yeah. I was writing my own notes. And yeah. I remember giving them to a Panamanian nurse who spoke English. She asked if she right. could read. And she brought it back to me and never came back. As <laughs> I was recounting my adventures, probably with the influence of "On the Road."
2: Well, what did what did she what did she uh, run off with with your note?
0: I, it was the I had an Olivetti typewriter that I brought oh, with me to Mexico okay. on yeah. my motorcycle, right. and Yeah, uh, was typing up my uh, my trip and my story and my experiences. Yeah, you're on and, the road. Uh, I, some of them, which were a little wild for a young guy, yeah. Uh, and um, you know, so that was that. So I that was my um, my biggest memory of on the road is what. Well, you were on your
2: your motorcycle also, and, and knocking around, uh, and all of us, in some sense or other, I think attempted to go on the road. That was the impact of that book. Was look, you know, you're free, and the beatnik ideology, if if they could be said to have had one, was experience. You know, go out and live, go out and work, go out and meet the people go out and uh, do what you can and uh, i think you uh,
0: you made that work where do you think things are at today
2: i wish we could go back uh, 20 30 years and uh, and reignite what uh, what happened with rising up angry what happened with the road what happened with that whole generation of people who were pro civil rights and against the war and because we're in we're in a very very awful spot terrible spot now when you look at the trump Situation, and uh, it seems to have produced at least in Iowa places like a kind of mom and pop fascism, and that's spooky to consider, you know. But if you think of the Midwest, I think you know always of that American Gothic, you know, the guy with the with the pitchfork next to his wife and whatnot. But I might have to add a swastika flag to that, which is pretty pretty bleak result, I would say. And uh, we're we're in a tough spot. No, and it's it's difficult.
0: but on the Warren, don't you see any positive things going on? Uh I do.
2: Yeah, no, I I do see. I mean, there, I mean,
0: I think things were research. always kind of rough, don't you? I mean, we always yeah, had.
2: yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I I, had, I, I, would, I would agree with you, but there, had there Nixon, are elements within the oh, Democratic Nixon. Party that are that are progressive. And uh say what you will about Joe Biden. Joe Biden, I think, is at least economically, has done a done a good job. And if I look at, uh, at at the Trump legacy, which is basically what we're talking about, this is a guy who assumed the American presidency. Remember, he lost the election. This is a guy who lost by three million votes, and because of this facacta uh College of Cardinals, this Electoral College. Okay, he becomes president of the United States, and he basically uses. Uh, The presidency is an ATM to enrich himself. There's a new report that has just been issued by the U.S. Congress, you know, not a small uh, uninvolved body exactly, you know, detailing, you know, the, the, the millions that Trump came away with. This is the first and only instance of a president essentially turning the office, you know, into his ATM. And that's what Trump did. OK, and we're talking about millions upon millions of dollars from the Chinese, uh, from the Russians, from whomever was renting his hotel rooms, et cetera. The son-in-law gets $2 billion from the Saudis. I mean, this is unheard of, un- unexplained, uh, and-, and incomprehensible that somebody like that.
0: Well, ate, what, you know. what do you think a uh, uh, you know, we're two old guys here. Yeah. What do you think uh, your role is my role what do you think the role of older people might ought to be uh at this time but well,
2: i mean i th- i think it's what we're doing you get out there and make some noise you know get out there and and fight the good fight because uh, we got our backs to the wall in some sense or other okay and uh you know we are we hoping that the people will step up and uh, step to the mark cuz we we got to do something about this this guy and what he represents Okay, you and I know that there's always been a fascist component uh, to this country, and uh, here's somebody uh, who represents it overtly, not covertly. Overtly, he's openly using the old fascist rhetoric. Okay, and I'm saying that everybody's got to step up in whatever way they can. You know, if it's if it's making uh, you know skateboards and putting anti-Trump slogans on them, on them, do it. You know. But everybody's got to step up at this point and do whatever they can. That means making making their voices public. We got to do this.
0: What do you I think be the role of performers and artists these days?
2: Um, I, I think they ought to take their lessons from from somebody like Brecht and not from David Mamet, who's a Trumper. Okay, and uh, Mamet's a Trump guy, and I'm saying look to Brecht in terms of uh, you know doing some some political. Uh, Theater, whatever, do some cabaret, uh, you know, and, and look for venues where that's possible, because we uh, uh, it's it's simply a, a matter of survival at this point.
0: I Warren, think. talk a little bit about Brecht and what, what attracted you to Brecht yeah, and yeah, what you yeah. like he's, about Brecht.
2: He's he's the major playwright of the 20th century. Unfortunately, uh, as they say at the State Department, he was a communist. OK, a very committed communist. And I've looked into his work seriously, and he's a great poet, uh, you know, and he was a, a wonderful writer, did some marvelous uh, theater. I think he did 40 plays. He was a great director, a great theater person. As you make your bed, so you will lie in it, and no one to pull you through. And if someone's doing the kicking, that would be me. And someone's going to get kicked, that would be you. Okay? So this is this is a little taste of Brecht. And uh, he's 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 just simply the the guy you gotta you're gonna take on 20th century theater or 21st century theater you gotta you can't go around them you gotta go through them you gotta learn your stuff we don't do we don't do that stuff well in this country okay we do Tennessee Williams okay he's a native but we don't do Brecht well there's a production coming up at a little theater in Chicago of Mother Courage, which I urge, urge everybody to. Check their papers, check New City or whatever, and go out and see. My friend Hugh Iglarsh over at New City is going to be reviewing it, but it's Brecht's masterpiece, and I urge everybody to see it. I think it's the Trapdoor Theater who are doing it, uh, if I'm correct in that. So, you know, try to see it. It's a masterwork. And uh, it's also tendentious stuff. Warren,
0: Warren Lemming, yes. can I ask you, are you still writing plays?
2: I do a, a weekly Facebook uh, poetry uh, thing and I, I write anti-Trump, anti-regime uh, poems uh, for Facebook under my own name. And uh, we're working on a review. They're also working on a book, which I got to get around to getting together. I got to get it edited. And I'd like to get that out there too. And people support Curb Publishing under the wonderful aegis of Tamara Smith, who's a wonderful activist organizer, Michael, you know her, I know her. She's a marvelous gal. She's in Mexico City part of the time, but she is uh, doing great work at Kerr Publishing, which is, by the way, the oldest left publisher uh, in the United States. Now I know a lot of this stuff sounds like nostalgia to people, <laughs> but, but it's but it's not. It's it's still an active part of a great Chicago tradition of which uh, rising up angry and mike james and wilderness road and all these other folks are part of okay chicago was a very very left town and and it remains in in part you know still like that and i urge everybody to get out there and make some noise bang on you know your your silverware etc
0: well people we're, we're recording this in the midst of a really cold spell here right. and so no one's running around outside but i think that uh Chicago is in a lot of ways in a good place. We've always had challenges. We have current ones coming up with right. all the number of immigrants coming here. But right. there are, um, you know, we got a, a more progressive city council. We have a much better mayor than. Yeah, uh, I think there are five the socialists
2: other. on the city council. There are five guys yeah. who identify as socialists, which is unheard of. I mean, this is the city of, uh, you know, daily going back to the 68 convention, convention in which both you and I played a part. You know, we were there in 68. We're 68ers, you know. We, we were there <laughs> for that, you know. It's
0: well, Warren, actually- I mean, it's been fun talking to you. And I mm-hmm. know we rambled around a lot, but we certainly touched on <laughs> some things. And we probably can get some good quotes out of it. Um, right. I mean, I'm going to, uh, while I still have you here, I'm going to just let people know that on our recent shows, we had some real interesting guests. And I'm just going to tell you who they are. You can get them all at YouTube.com slash Heartland Media slash videos. We had Jeff Smith uh, talking about Evanson and the new stadium up there and many other things. We had Jim Canadle, uh talking about his new book. We had Bob Lawson and Steve Goldsmith talking about labor. We had David Dorado Romo talking about the devil's rope and barbed wire on the border. And we had Uh, the incomparable Don Rose and Chewie Garcia on. All of those are available. And uh, we've got Kathy Kelly, Thorne Dreyer from the RAG blog out of Austin, Texas, Bill Knight from downstate Illinois, the poet Grady Chambers. Uh, We got Peg Dublin uh, coming on talking about some uh, activities for older people. So We're glad you've been tuning in to the Live from the Heartland Show, however you've gotten it. Remember, just because someone's grumpy about life and money doesn't mean they have to uh, help vote in a fascist. So spread the word. I want to thank the people who made the show possible. That would be our engineer, Hal James, our producers, Katie Hogan, Tom Clark, and Lynn Orman. Our guests, Dick Simpson and Warren Lemming. And we'll be back next week. Do good in the world because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do together. All power to the people. Mm -hmm. We want to thank you for tuning in to the Live from the Heartland show on Apple Podcasts. New episodes air every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. You can listen on Spotify Podcasts by looking up Live from the Heartland. Episodes are broadcast on WLUW each Saturday at 9 a.m. On the left end of your dial, 88.7 FM in Sweet Home, Chicago, or streaming everywhere worldwide at WLUW.org. If you want to tune in a day early, episodes are broadcast on Lumpen Radio Fridays at 9 a.m. on 105.5 FM and streaming at lumpenradio.com. Video episodes are available on Fridays beginning at 9 a.m. on youtube.com heartlandmedia and also on CanTV each following Thursday at 9 p.m. on Channel 21 or streaming everywhere else at canTV.org. I'm Michael James, and I'm glad to have been your host. Until next time, remember, do good in the world because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do together. All power to the people. Over and out. Come to Limbo. Are you doing the best you can? <laughs> Tell me, are you do it.